since we've been in the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 9 this evening. Nehemiah chapter 9. If you need a Bible, Stephen is up and he's got four Bibles in his hand, so bring one to your seat. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10, and you're going, oh my goodness, there's a lot of verses. You're right, but there's a lot of names, and so we're kind of, we'll go through it kind of quick this evening, but uh, don't freak out. All right, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to be in your word. Lord, it's always good just to open up your word and to know that your Holy Spirit is teaching us and, and uh, touching in our lives areas, Lord, that, that need to be touched, Lord, things going on in our hearts that we need to to be revealed to us, Lord, and we thank you that that's what your word does. It's it's alive, it's quick, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It does pierce our hearts. So, Lord, as we spend this time this evening in your word, Lord, we pray that it would just do that work in our hearts. We see the example of your people Israel, Lord, and the things they went through in, in their hearts, Lord, and we, uh, Lord, we learn from their example, as your word says. And so we thank you for this time we pray that your blessing and continued anointing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Book of Nehemiah really is about revival. And when it comes to revival, there has to be, or there's never really been a revival without one essential element. A personal consciousness of sin. Because when revival sweeps over people, the first evidence is a profound awareness of sin and, and sorrow of it. And this is throughout history. And I think even when you when you go back to remember our studies through the book of Jonah, when revival came to Nineveh in response to the preaching of the prophet Jonah, the people, man, they, they declared a fast, they put on sackcloth. Even the king took part. Listen to Jonah chapter 3, verse 7 through 9. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals, may eat or drink anything at all. Everyone is required to wear sackcloth and pray earnestly to God. Everyone must turn from their evil ways and stop with their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps yet, even yet God will have pity on us and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. See, even the animals were called to a fast back then. Because again, the first, again, the first evidence of a true revival in their person's life is an awakening to their conscience of sin, leading them to that sorrow over sin. And that's what's happened in Nehemiah's time, chapter 8, chapter 9, on into chapter 10, and why really Nehemiah is about revival. If you recall, again, about a month ago from our last study, the wall was built, the, the, the job was completed, revival had struck. The people had heard the preaching of God's word. There was sorrow, there was repentance, lives were changed. But Nehemiah... And the Levites held back the sorrow and repentance. And look at verse 9 of chapter 8. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. This day, the day that the wall was completed, the day the word of God was read among the people, Nehemiah, Levi said, you know, that this day is a day of praise. It's a day of thanksgiving. Thus the reason Nehemiah said, do not mourn. In fact, he sent the people away, told them, said, go off your diets, eat, drink, have a feast. Kind of like what we all did last Thursday, you know. Hey, let's have a good time, let's eat. 
We see, uh, I also saw in Nehemiah chapter 8 that they felt that it was a time of day of rejoicing first of celebration. Again, the reason behind that is he wanted to direct their thoughts on God. Have them centered on God, how great God is, how powerful God is, what God has done. Because if they focused on their sorrow and repentance, then all their focus would be on themselves and on their sin. So now, after they celebrated this day of praise and thanksgiving, as we looked at last time, remember the Feast of Booths they celebrated, remembering God's provision for them in the wilderness. Now we come to chapter 9, and now it's that time for humility and repentance and renewed commitment to the Lord. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth with dust on their heads. Now this is two days after the Feast of Tabernacles or or booths is is complete. They're now taking the time to respond all that they have heard from God's word. Now we know sackcloth and, and, and dust and fasting was all a sign of great distress and humiliation and repentance. And, and, and you know, this shows us that repentance isn't something that we finish after coming to Jesus. It's not just one and done. You know, I repented once for my sin and I'm good to go after that. No, it's something that grows as we grow closer to the Lord. I think the Apostle Paul, who in Ephesians 3, 8 said he was the least of all the saints. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, a little later on in his Walk with the Lord. He's the least of the apostles who's not worthy to be called an apostle. Then towards the end of his life in 1 Timothy 1.15, he called himself the chief of sinners. Not that Paul became a worse sinner the longer he walked with the Lord, but his realization of the holiness of God after walking with the Lord for so long brought him over and over again to that place of seeing his unholiness and seeing his need of repentance. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Repentance grows as faith grows. Do not make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of days and weeks, a temporary penance to be got over as fast as possible. No, it is the grace of a lifetime like faith itself. Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. I mean, think about how many times in your life as a Christian where God reveals areas in your life that that need to be worked on and we find ourselves back in that same place again. Oh, Lord, yeah, thank you for revealing this to me through your word. Man, I repent. I'm sorry, Lord. I turn from that, that, and we move on. That's why Spurgeon would say repentance grows as faith grows. Alan Redpath put it this way. God will never plant the seed of his life upon the soil of a hard, unbroken spirit. He will only plant that seed where the conviction of his spirit has brought brokenness, where the soil has been watered with tears of repentance as well as the tears of joy. Well, look at verse 2 now. Well, then those of the Israelites' lineage separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So basically, you know, for three hours they stood up and read for the word, and for another three hours they confessed and worshipped the Lord. Now, we have a hard time standing for three minutes, let alone for three Hours. But notice again here, when we think about revival and we think about repentance, that, that we first see that the confession of sin from the people is once again linked to what the reading of the word of God. The priest had been reading the word for three hours and then the people confessed for three hours. And the reason I bring that up is that it's a word of God that brought about the, their repentance. Paul puts it this way in Romans 7, 7. Well, then. Uh, This is in the New Living Translation. 
Well, then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. You see, there can be no true revival individually or as a nation without the acknowledgement of sorrow for and, and turning from sin. And there can be no true sense of what sin is or acknowledgement of sin unless we see it as an offense to God. And the only way to see it as an offense to God is to see that our actions are contrary to the Word of God. So that's why we need to be in the Word of God. Revival takes place in a person's heart first individually, then there is where the sin, then the Word of God's Word says about the sin, then repentance comes. And as, as a result of that, God moves in a powerful way. In fact, one more thing I want to point out before we move on from verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says that they, they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now, doesn't that seem like the exact opposite of what we see today? I mean, when they were repenting, they confessed the sin to their fathers. Today, we blame our sin on our fathers. We blame our sin on our mothers. Oh, I know I have a bad temper, but I get that from my father. Or I get it from my mother. Or it's my Irish temper. We blame it on our, our you know, our, our authenticity. You know, we do it a lot today. It's always somebody else's fault. You know, if your neighbor crashes into a tree while driving home drunk, they blame the bartender. You know, if a person smokes and three packs a day for 40 years and dies of lung cancer, the family blames the tobacco company. person, you know, orders hot coffee from a drive-thru and spills it on them while driving and gets burned and they sue the restaurant that sold them the coffee. It's a blame game. It's not taking blame for our own actions, but instead blaming it on everything and everyone else. But you see, when, when true revival comes, people stop making excuses you know, for, and, and by what others have done, or even their parents, and they instead confess openly for their sin and wrongdoing. I think of Isaiah. You know, Isaiah is crying out, woe to this person, or woe to that person, and then he sees the Lord high and lift up, and says, woe to me, you know. So as a recognition of sin, they now break out in prayer in verses 4 through 38. Now this prayer is said to be the longest prayer in the Old Testament. Look at verse 4. Then Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunny, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. So you have Bonnie and Bunny and Bonnie's twin brother, Bonnie. <laughs> oh, we, we know they're Levites. We don't know who they are or how they're related if that. But the point is, these men were touched by God and, and His Word, and they stood on the stairs and began to pray with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Obviously, not, you know, all of the men didn't pray the following prayer all at the same time. Perhaps it was all written out and maybe they took turns and read a few verses at a time. Or, or according to tradition, they say that Ezra actually prayed this prayer out loud. But the bottom line is, it was a big deal. And then the tone of the prayer is set on the opening line in which the Levites challenged the people and verse 5 to stand up. Look at verse 5. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiah, Bani again, Hasha, Bania, Sherebiah, Hadijah, Shabaniah and Pethahiah <laughs> said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. I like that. He says, Stand up. Let's praise the Lord. You know, that's why I like to stand. You know, when we come together in the church and we worship the Lord, man, let's all stand and worship the Lord. We do that Sunday morning and Wednesday nights. It should be an exciting time to come together to worship the Lord. You want to stand to your feet. It's like, you know, if you see a big play on a baseball game, you're at a football game. Oh, yeah, all right. You know, you cheer them on. You know, listen, we come together. It's the Lord. Oh, bless the Lord forever and ever. Bless be your glorious name. 
which is exalted above all blessing and praise. They're all they're praising the Lord. They go on, look at verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heavens worships you. You know, when you read these verses, and you sense, you sense how much wiser these Levites were than some of today's scholars, even biblical scholars. You know, he's talking about God and creation and, 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 and how, what he's made and what he's done. And, 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 you know, today the opening chapter of Genesis is a, is a battleground for competing theories of origin. Let alone, you know, to push aside the anti-God bogus theory of evolution. You have those say, well, you know, I believe in the gap theory. There's a gap between, you know, verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis 1. Well, I believe in the six-day creationism, the theistic evolution, the progressive evolution. Now, it's important to look at those things in the proper place and proper time, but, but that's not what Genesis 1 and 2 is about. What they are about are the nature of God, uh, you know, His power, His goodness, and about the, the duty that man owes His Creator. And that's what is brought out here in Nehemiah 9. They acknowledge God by saying, You have made heaven, you, 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 the, the, the heavens of heavens, and with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve them all. See, I can't read this, and maybe, maybe you can't either, without thinking and pointing you to Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Speaking of the, of the deity of Jesus Christ, Paul writes, For by Him all things were created and are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and, he in, him, and in Him all things consist. You see the comparison. You see as, as the Levites pray about the Lord, you made everything. As Paul writes, Jesus, you are the one. And so Ezra and the Levites are reminding the people the reasons they have to praise God for. And they see the glory of God in, in his creation and what he's done. And so they birth forth in praise and adoration. And so the first six verses here describe for us the work that God has done in creation. Well, next in verses 7 through 31 we see a review of Israel's history. And, and if you look at this, you know, we're going to read through a lot of this, but if you look at this and, and you compare it to Acts chapter 8 and Stephen and his words there, you see that it was very, very similar. And it makes you wonder, did Stephen memorize this prayer that we see uh, here in Nehemiah chapter 9? Uh, very much could have. And, and so here it begins in verse 7 with, with God's calling of Abraham. And as you read through it, you'll see that the subject uh, of every action is God. Look at verses 7 through 15 now. They pray, You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, the Termites, and to give it all to his descendants. He says, You have performed your words, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they had acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And the persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai, and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. 
Verse 14, you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. You see, the entire emphasis is on what God has done. It's all on God, showing us how God is faithful to keep his promises, even when we're not faithful. God's promise to Abraham at first might have seemed pretty far-fetched. Oh, you're going to be a father of many nations and many people. But look back and go, man, it all came true. Then in their prayer, they moved to Moses. God knew the Egyptians were mistreating his people. And so he raised up a man and used him to deliver them from their oppression. He provided for them spiritually and physically through the wilderness. So this prayer really begins with God is great because of his creation, but also because of his choice of Abraham and Moses and his care for his people. God is also great. He's great because he's revealed his will, his commandments, and I'll speak of his holiness. That in verses 13 and 14, it really sum it up well. We see of God, it says, you came down. We see it says, you spoke, you gave, you made known. I love that. See, it's all God. God's character and will are not some big, gigantic secret. God moves in our lives. It's all Him. In the same way, Jesus came down. Jesus spoke. Jesus gave. Jesus made known the Father. See, God loves us so much, He comes to us and does that work in our hearts. It's all Jesus. And that prayer goes on in verse 14. It says that God commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. In other words, God was also the source of the Ten Commandments given to Moses for the people. In our society, man, they've done all that they can to get rid of the Ten Commandments. I mean, let's get it out of any sort of public building, any sort of government facility. Let's get it out of there. Why? Because it's a reminder that these are God's commandments. They don't like that. They're not suggestions. It's not like you look at the 30 mile per hour speed limit and say, well, it's a 30 mile per hour suggestion. No, see, these people, they don't like to see it because they know that they've broken God's laws. They don't want to see themselves as sinners as they truly are. But what they don't understand is that God has given us these, these commandments to make our lives better, not worse. Don't murder. Don't steal. Why? Because these things cause heartache. They cause pain, suffering. So listen. Obey the commandments. But look at verse 16. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. Man, look at all that God's done. And you see, you know, just the terrible response to all that he's done. And so they're remembering in this prayer how God has been so good to Israel, but that, that our, their fathers acted proudly, so sinful against them. Now, in verse 16, we really do see a sign of true revival in that, that they're recognizing their own sinfulness. They're recognizing it. They're saying, listen, we did not listen. Our fathers acted proudly. They hardened their necks. They did not heed your commandments. See, when we humbly seek God and seek His goodness, we can't help but notice our own sinfulness. And, and the blackness of our sin stands out against the brightness of God's purity and goodness. They go on in verses 17 through 31, and, and the focus is still on God and what God has done in the midst of Israel, turning their back on Him. Look at verse 17. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought 
you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the ways they should go. Verse 20, you also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't even wear out and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts so that they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon and the land of Ah, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you have told their fathers to go in and possess. And so the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. And they ate and they were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. All these things God did for them. Verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. Verse 24, 27. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had a rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, you are God gracious and merciful. After reading all of that, let me say it's because of God's grace and mercy that he hasn't consumed all of us right now because we've all done the same thing. You know, God saves us. He pulls us out. He protects us. He provides for us. And, and we, we turn on him. When God says in his word that his, his long-suffering towards us is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, that's what he means. And that's why we can read and agree that it's His goodness that leads us to repentance. And that's what we see over and over again. The, the, the children of Israel turn their back on, on God, and even as, as God was good. And finally, they've come to this place on this day of repentance. And now they have a request. Look at verse 32 through, through 37. First, verse 32 first. Now therefore, God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy... Do not let all the troubles seem so small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. I love this prayer because they're being totally honest with the Lord. It's a model confession. They're not trying to hide anything. They're not... Uh, saying, Lord, we confess we did this or that, but it wasn't our fault. It was this guy and they made us do this. And if we weren't had that, no, they're honest. They're confessing the Lord. 
And, he, and they say, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. See, they're acknowledging that although God was good to them, patient with them and gracious towards them, they continue to wander off and go astray. And they understood that the reason they were carried into captivity and, and overtaxed and oppressed was because God was trying to get attention. And they recognize if God doesn't help them at this time for, for this reason and purpose, he's dealing with them faithfully. You know, I think there are times that God takes us through heavy trials because he's trying to get our attention. We're going in the wrong direction. And so he'll allow this trial to get, you know, get into our life and come into our lives. And we go, okay, you know, I, I kind of see what's going on. And, but then we don't go in the right direction. And over and over again. But he, he's faithful to come after us. Why? Because he loves us. Well, then go on. Look at verse 34. It says, Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies, which you have testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things you have gave them on the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, verse 36, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it deals much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sin. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. So as they close out their prayer, they've expressed their sorrow for their sin. They, they confessed it. They were honest about it. We see them pleading for God's mercy to help them in the, in the time of distress. And, 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 and really, you know, I think we know people that, that, you know, you know, they're sorry. Maybe they express sorrow for sin in their lives and, 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 and acknowledge the problems that they're in. But that maybe you know that there's not really been any real repentance. Oh, man, I'm sorry. And, and I know I was wrong. But, but they keep going, doing the same thing over and over again. It's like the story I found about a man who attended this certain church. And he always would end his prayer with, and the Lord, and Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life. Clean the, clean the cobwebs out of my life. Well, one of the members of the church became tired of hearing this same insincere request week after week because he saw no change in the person's life. So the next time he heard the man pray, Lord, clean the, clean the cobwebs out of my life, he interrupted with, and while you're at it, Lord, kill the spider. <laughs> See, it's one thing to offer a passionate prayer of confession, uh, such as we have in chapter 9, and quite something else to live an obedient life after we say amen. So the people heard the word of God. They're confessing their sin. But there has to be that repentance that's turning away from sin and turning to the Lord. That's why the, the third stage of, of Nehemiah's revival is important to us. The third, third stage is a, it's a formal commitment to change. So they hear the word of God. They repented their sin. Now there has to be that change. And this is expressed in this binding agreement in verse 38. And really on into chapter 10, look at verse 38. And because of this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. In other words, we're serious about turning away from our sin and renewing our relationship with the Lord. How serious? So serious that we're going to make a covenant. We're making an agreement that we are going to hold to. And in verse 1 of chapter 10, it begins with, look at verse 1. Now, those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. And verse 2, all the way down to verse 27, are all these other guys that I'm not going to try to pronounce. But the head of the list is Nehemiah and Zedekiah. Zedekiah was probably Nehemiah's chief secretary, so he's, you know, recording everything. And, and the, then the second category of signers on this commitment, on this document, are Israel's priests in verses 2 through 8. 
The third category contains 17 names of the Levites in verses 9 through 13. And the final category contains the names of 44 of the noble families of Israel, verses 14 through 27. Drop down now to verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had, that's just another name for servants uh, in the, in the, around the temple, and all those who separated themselves from the people of the land, so the law of the God, the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. Now this is the rest of the people not included in that first list. That is those that did not sign the covenant. They also wanted to join in. They too wanted to separate themselves into God. And so they're making this covenant with God as well. It says, when it says they entered into a curse, it doesn't mean, you know, some weird thing. It means that, that, that they would say, curse be the man that fails to do what this covenant says. They're saying, you know, we would do this. We're going to serve God. We're going to follow him. We're going to keep his commandments. We, we, we've read his law. As we looked at, they failed to do it in the past. And, and, and you know, they brought up all the ways that they failed to do it in, in the past. Well, now, as they move on, uh, he's gonna, they're going to get back to what they're going to do in the future. And so they say, from now on, we've learned our lesson. Therefore, in verse 30, 30 says, We're not going to give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. So he begins with a family and, and, and really promising, hey, we're not going to intermarry with other, the other nations around us. Not... You know, this isn't racial snob prejudice. The concern was, was, was religious. There was a, a danger of having the people being led away to worship the pagan gods, and that's what got them in trouble in the first place. So they're saying, hey, we're not going to go back there. No more mixed marriages. They go on in verse 31. If the people of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year produce and the exacting of every debt. So they're saying, we're going to keep the Sabbath. Verse 32. Also we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offerings of the Sabbath, the new moons and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of God. So they're saying, when it comes to the temple, we're going to pay the temple tax. These are things that, that they should have done before. And as you look at these things, you can see they had the right motives. They were committing their entire lives to the Lord, including their wallets, you might say. They say, okay, even our money, man, we're going to give it up. The temple tax was uh, to be one-third of a shekel. It was needed to provide the materials used to worship in the worship of God. So every year, those who are 20 years of old, or age of older were required to pay this one-third of a shekel. Now, there's nothing wrong with this if your heart is right with the Lord, but if it is not, then, then you know what? If you give grudgingly or out of compulsion, it's not right. That's why I believe that when people say, Christians, man, you need to give 10%, they're making it a law, it's wrong. It's not scriptural. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So they're saying, okay, we're going to give our one-third, we're going to give that shekel, we're going to give to the house of the Lord. You know, for us, man, we give, but we give with a cheerful heart, not because we have to give, but because we get to give, we desire to give. Now look at verse 34 down to verse 39. 
We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. Verse 35, And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of the trees, year by year, to the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priest who ministered to the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, that's not money, it's bread dough, our offerings, the fruit, fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil, to the priest, to the storms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all of our farming communities. And the priest, the descendants of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithe to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine, and the oil to the storms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. So, not only are they they're tithing, they're giving for the temple tax, and they're saying, we're going to give even above and beyond all of that. Like wood for the great altar, the first fruits from the crops and trees, they promise to supply them. You know, in the same way, there are things that we can give to the, to the work of the ministry besides money, besides our tithes. We can bring food in for the food pantry. We could come out to the gathering tree and minister to people there. We can show up on church and work days and, and work out. We, you, know, you know, we can offer services to people in the, in the need of the body of Christ here. You know, if you know how to fix cars, hey, I'm going to go fix this person's car today. Or, or you know, you had some construction thing. I'm going to go help this person construction thing. And it's, it's saying we're, we're doing all these things above and beyond what we already, you know, feel compelled to do to the the Lord, as his word says, we want to do even more of this as well. And really, what we see is they're just committed to the ministry there, putting God first and then family, then ministry. It was the heart of the people to covenant, Lord, we're going to be your people again. We're going to serve you. That's our heart here. They want to serve the Lord. They want to get back to where they need to be. And let me give you some thoughts to close with. Remember, all of this came about because the word of God was spoken to the people. It was the word of God that brought revival into their hearts of the people and it resulted in what they did and what they said. They, they turned away from their sin and they started doing that which was good. The word of God affected their lives because God began to work on the inside and it overflowed in their outward actions. What was the result? What did they do? Well, again, if you back up, they avoided intermarriages with the other nations. Why? Because they read Deuteronomy 7 verses 3 and 4. Then we read that they, they kept the Sabbath every year. We read that. Why? Because they read Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. They kept the sabbatical year as they read Leviticus 25, 2 through 7. They were supporting the, the temple service as they read Exodus 30, 11 through 16. The wood for the burnt offering was being provided as they read and obeyed Leviticus 6, 12 through 13. The first fruit of the crops were being offered as they read Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 3. The firstborn of their sons, when they would redeem back, and the firstborn of their animals, which they would sacrifice, were given to God. They read Numbers 18, 15 through 17. And then their annual tithe offering were being given as they read and applied Numbers 18, 21 through 24. My point in this is that revival doesn't happen apart from the Word of God being proclaimed and being obeyed. 
Look back over the history in the Bible. Look back over the history in the recent past and you'll see that revival is always a result of the Word of God being proclaimed and obeyed. May we have a love and a passion for the Word of God, not just for knowledge or information, but application. That we would live what we say we believe, that revival would begin in our hearts and spread outwards. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a lot that we read this evening, Lord. I know we went through a lot of verses in a short amount of time, but Lord, it it shows to us an overall picture of your love and faithfulness and compassion upon your people, Lord. That even when they blew it, even when they failed, Lord, that you were faithful to supply their needs and to help them get back on track. And Father, we recognize as a people that we have failed and we have sinned, Lord, and we all fall short of the glory of your glory. But we also recognize that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for him. And we thank you that we can come to you any time, Lord, and find that grace and mercy and forgiveness because of what your Son did upon the cross for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that, that you place through your word, through your Holy Spirit, to change our lives. And help us, Lord, to be obedient to your word and to live these lives, Lord, uh, Lord of obedience. Lord, help us to have revival in our hearts, recognizing our sinfulness. Help us turn to you. Lord, I pray for our nation. We pray for our new president, Lord, who's coming into office. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would be turned back into, uh, that there would be revival into our land, Lord, that we would turn back to godly principles, Lord, that you would uh, raise up into our country, Lord, as he chooses the cabinet, Lord, that he's going to be working with, that they would be godly men and godly women, Lord, that would lead our nation back into where we need to be, Lord, in, in subjection to you, Lord God, and following your laws and obedience to you. Just give him wisdom, Lord, we pray. And we pray, Lord, that you would send revival to our country. And let it start with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one last song together.